years, Great Oaks Camp has been up the road there in Lakin sharing the gospel eyeball to eyeball with young boys and young girls who need to know Jesus. Over 8,000 kids have heard the gospel in the last 40 years. And by God's grace, we'd like to double that uh, over the next 40. Um, it's a ministry with a long history here at Chillicothe Bible Church, a long history in the community. As Tyler mentioned, their banquet is coming up, and I do have tickets. I have six left. Um, Judy and, and uh, Rick also have tickets, but I'd like you to go with me. So see me afterwards, and I'll get you a ticket. Uh, you can go as my guest or as Rick's guest or as Judy's guest, and uh, we'll, we'll provide you with dinner, and it'll be a great time. You'll be able to hear more in depth about uh, what God is doing, like I say, right up the road. Um, if it's true that, uh, that God exalts the, the small things in eternity and makes the, uh, the seemingly small places into uh, places of great reward, uh, folks who serve and minister through Great Oaks Camp will be greatly rewarded indeed. Uh, they they share the gospel, like I say, with dozens of kids every summer, and every single kid that comes through there gets an eyeball-to-eyeball, one-on-one presentation of the gospel and an invitation to meet Jesus. I've been a board member for, for uh, five years now on that ministry and more excited all the time about what they're doing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to tell you about is about this Jonah class. Um, the last two weeks, we've been advertising this inductive study through the, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah is a prophet unlike any other in that he is a prophet who does not want to share the message God has given him with a bunch of people who otherwise are going to die. Now, if that sounds like any of us who have been given God's message and who very often are reluctant to share it with those around us who otherwise are going to die. Uh, it's be only because it's supposed to. And uh, if, you are, if you are someone who is a little bit fearful, who is a little unsure as to whether or not you would ever be able to open your mouth and share the gospel with someone else, I want you to take this class. I want you to learn how to study, your, study the scripture and be able to understand it and be able to present it to someone else. Because we're going to learn that. And it's not just 7 to 10 on Friday night. It's also 8 to 4 all day on Saturday. And if you talk to Kenton Bergman or you talk to uh, Spencer Smith, they'll both tell you this is one of the best things they've ever done. And so I want you to, per to consider participating in this. Uh, you'll learn how to stand and deliver God's word to people. And it's exciting and it's fun. We have a good time. And we'll provide you with lunch, and uh, you'll hear from Brad Reardon uh, from Pastors Training Network with the Evangelical Free Church, and you'll, I'll also uh, be giving him an assist as part of that class as well. And it's fun, and you learn a lot, you get to participate and do some exciting things, and, um, and you'll enjoy it. So I want you to, to consider that opportunity and sign up for that. If you've ever watched a two-year-old, how many of you have a two-year-old? How many of you have had a two-year-old in your house? All right. You'll know that when they're two years old, they have a favorite word, four letters, 
And I'll give you a hint. It's not mama, and it's not dada. It's a possessive pronoun for you grammar geeks out there. What is it? Mine, exactly. Mine. And, and they use that word on everything. It doesn't have to belong to them. It doesn't have to be in their possession. It doesn't have to have ever, in fact, been in their possession. But they see it, and they want it, and they label it, mine! (laughs) Okay? Now, the reason I bring this up is because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is is worshipped and revered as the God king over this nation. And as he sits on his throne, he looks out over his dominion, And he looks down especially on the people of Israel, God's people. And he says of them his favorite two-year-old word, mine. Okay? And we're about to see God like a good father, as the creator God. As the God who called Israel to be his own. Step into Pharaoh's life and say, no. Those people are mine. And you will not rule over them. And you will not oppress them. And you will not abuse them and mistreat them and murder them anymore. And you will be disciplined and judged for all that you have done to my people. And God does this in a way that the message is clear, not just to Pharaoh, not just to the Egyptians, not just to the Israelites, but even to all the nations all around who are watching this drama play out, that God is sovereign, and He alone is worthy of worship, and He alone is God in heaven, and all the others are just pretenders. So if you got your Bible, I want you to go with me to Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 8 and go through the rest of chapter 7. This is what the Word of God says. In fact, you know what? As you're turning there, before before I start reading, I want to take just a second and pray. And I want to ask the Lord to be with us as His Word is read and preached, that we would not only hear it, but we would obey it together. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are a God of prayer, that You are, in fact, the only God worthy of the name. That everything else that we might sacrifice for, or worship, or pursue, or give energy to, is just a pretender and a counterfeit, and a cheap substitute for walking with you, and knowing you, and being known by you, and being conformed to the image of the Son. Father, we pray that as we read your word, as it is explained, that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. And that, Father, you would be glorified as we not only hear, but do the Word of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 7, beginning of verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now this is Moses and Aaron's second trip before Pharaoh. The first one did not go that well, if you remember. They went in, Moses says, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And on top of that, by the way, I'm going to make Israel's labor harder and their slavery even more oppressive than it has been up to now. Moses goes back to God. What are you doing? They have this long conversation. And God is able to tell Moses, Moses, I told you this was all going to happen. I told you that I was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and that he was not going to let the people of Israel go easily. And I'm going to have to do some signs and some miracles, but in the meantime, I'm going to give Pharaoh every opportunity to repent. But he's not going to. You're going to have to go back. When you go back, I want you to do these signs. And he does, if you remember, the first sign that he did before the people of Israel was this one, turning the staff into snakes. Now, there's a little bit of variation in this story that, are, that you might not pick up on. Uh, you remember that, um, that in chapter 4, verse 3, uh, God says, throw your staff down and it'll become a snake. And it does, and Moses runs. <laughs> because he sees this thing and he's like, uh, time to go, uh, got to get out of here. And he, God tells him, pick it up by the tail. Bad idea, unless God tells you to do that. And he does, and it becomes a staff again in his hand. But here we have a different word for snake. In chapter 4, verse 3, it's the Hebrew word nahash, which is the, the standard word for snake. Slithery thing that goes through the grass, right? Um, that every woman wants to have as a pet. <laughs> Not really. Um, but here is a different word. It's the Hebrew word tanin. And it is uh, the word used in Genesis verse 1, 21, to, to when, God, when it says that God made the great creatures of the deep. That God made the big animals that live in the water. Okay, And it's the... And it's the word that is used elsewhere in Hebrew to refer to things like crocodiles and alligators and whales and so forth. So there's some debate among commentators when God says, throw your staff down and it will become a snake. If what we're seeing is, you know, a kind of a standard sized snake or something quite significant that shows up in Pharaoh's you know, I don't know if before it was a small snake and now it's an anaconda or exactly what is in view, but it's a word for a more massive animal. 
And God, uh, God tells Moses, throw your staff down and it'll become a tanin, serpent. Uh, and he does, and it becomes this massive thing. And then Pharaoh says, oh yeah, well that's nothing. I got magicians. We'll try that. And they come in and they throw their stick down and it becomes a snake. The scripture says, by their secret arts. And by which, by which reference I think we're supposed to understand by their contact with the demonic. They're able to reproduce God's miracle. But, what do you see? Moses' serpent comes over and eats there. And that's not simply God being petulant and saying, oh yeah, well, my snake ate your snakes. What he's saying is this. He is trying to show something very significant and highly theological. Okay? And you might not know this, but let me give you um, let me give you a little Egyptian mythology. Now you probably didn't get this in school. Uh, I think all they study in school usually is Greeks, or maybe if you're into comic books, you get a little Norse mythology with Thor and Loki and all that kind of thing, right? Um, but Egyptian mythology is a little bit different. They believe that at the dawn of time, that the sun god Ra became chief of the gods. Because he is the one who conquers the, the great beasts of the water. Okay? And that the end of time will come when the, when the sun is swallowed up by the giant snake. And they believe that Ra became the first pharaoh of Egypt and chief of the gods by conquering over the snake representing the forces of chaos. Right? Now, let me tell you why that matters. They put the snake, therefore, on their, on their headdress, on their uh, crown, for the, to represent the throne of Egypt because it represents the imposition of order of the rule of the pharaohs over the forces of chaos that would otherwise be there. Right? But the snake is nevertheless worshipped. And... And what God is saying is this, okay? That he is the one who creates all things. And he is the one who contains the power to give commands to the beings that he wants. Including snakes, including giant beasts of the, of the water, including whatever. And, and by the way, you who believe you're the incarnation of the sun god, my snake just ate your snake. What's that tell you? It tells you that your kingdom is going to be overthrown in judgment. That your days are numbered, Pharaoh. And my power is greater than yours. And, and when God does this, does Pharaoh listen? No. He should have got a big warning because God is telling him, even in terms that he can understand through what he already believes, that the power of the incarnation of the sun god, which is who, who the Pharaoh believes himself to be, is waning, and he's about to be consumed just like the snakes that you make. But because 
Satan and the demonic realm have offered this counterfeit, they don't get it. They go, well, see, that's not that's no great trick. My guys can do that too. And he doesn't believe. He hardens his heart. And Egypt's power is going to end in darkness and death because Pharaoh fails to heed the warning. Even as powerful, even as miraculous as this, he fails to heed the warning because his heart is hard and he does not want to obey God. Now, by the way, let me just make a point on that. Okay, Lots of times, people will say to me, or maybe they've said to you, or maybe you've even thought this. Well, if only God would break into the time-space universe like he did in the Old Testament, or if only God would do miracles like he did in the days of Jesus, if only God would, enable, would raise up new apostles as he did in Acts, and people would see miracles and then they would believe. You know what's true? People saw miracles happen under Moses, under Elijah, under Jesus, under the apostles, and guess what? They took Jesus outside the city and crucified him. They beheaded Paul. They murdered every one of the disciples except for John. After they tried to kill him and couldn't, they put him on an island breaking rocks instead. Why? Because though they saw the miracle, their hearts were hard and they refused to believe. It is not necessarily so that if we see God do something miraculous, that therefore we will believe. All kinds of people all through history saw miraculous things happen and yet still rejected God because the heart condition matters more than what you've seen. Remember what Jesus said? Because you have seen, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And you, by the way, are recipients, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, of a far greater miracle than ever happened in all of the Scriptures, in that the Holy Spirit has been given to you and brought you into the body of Christ and, may, and given you a spiritual gift and given you adoption into God's own family and membership as part of the, the household of God and inheritance in heaven, you have magnificent manifold blessings that even Moses never experienced. Amen? So don't discount the miracles that have happened in your life, but at the same time, don't assume that if God would only do something cataclysmic, that then people would believe, or then you would believe. Because if your heart is hardened, you very likely won't. Satan's counterfeits continue to convince. Amen? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. 
Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, This is Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, this is the first plague. And the thing that is common to all of the plagues that God lays on Egypt is that each one is designed as a specific refutation to a deity or deities that are worshipped in Egypt. They have this whole pantheon of gods that represent various natural forces and creatures. And every one of the plagues is designed as a rebuke to the worshiping of that idol. And there are some very interesting things that happen in this. Uh, One of the gods that they worship is Hapi. And Hapi is depicted as this man with breasts uh, who lives in the Nile River. And is this green or blue deity. And he controls the flooding of the of the uh, of the Nile every year every every year the the snows would melt in the mountains to the south and the the Nile would overflow its banks and it would carry all this silt and as the water receded all that silt would be left behind and there'd be fertility uh all over along the the, the flood plain that lays along both sides of that great river it doesn't do that anymore because they've dammed it up uh, all I think there's Several uh, several dams. The biggest one is the Aswan Dam uh, at the at the Great Cataract that used to be there. And uh, but it would it would flood this whole area, and all down the Nile would be lush and green, and you could grow crops. And this was the thing that gave Egypt early on its power as a nation, because in contrast to all the other nations around them that relied on the rain. Every year the flooding of the Nile came and it was reliable. And it brought fertility and power to that whole nation. And so they worshipped the Nile as Hapi, this god, who brought fertility to the land and who brought them strength. And they said, this is the thing that gives us life. And they also worshipped a god who lived in it uh, called Sobek. Sawbeck is a man with the head of a crocodile. Maybe you've seen him on Egyptian art. You know, if you go up to uh, the um, Field Museum in Chicago and you look at the Egyptian exhibit, you'll see Sawbeck. And you'll see statues of this guy with a, a loincloth and a, and a man's body and a crocodile's head. And 
by worshiping this deity, Sobek, you were protecting yourself from the dangers of the Nile. Because even today, there are crocodiles that live in the water. And those things are dangerous. And there are other things that are in the Nile that could pull you under. And that could hurt you. And so if you worshipped Sabek, you were protecting yourself from all the dangers associated with living along the river. Of drowning, of crocodiles and hippos and these kinds of things. And he was therefore the God not only of fertility and protection, but also the God of Egypt's military prowess because the crocodile is a bad mamajama. And <laughs> they are nasty little creatures. They can, they're big and bad enough, some of them, to pull a rhino in by his nose. That's a strong animal. And they symbolized their army as led by Sobek, this god. And God, the real God, strikes the Nile River. And that which has brought them life from generation to generation is now the thing bringing them death. The whole thing turns to blood. And all the fish die. Y'all ever been by a fish market? They got fresh fish. And you go, hmm, I think some of that's starting to turn, right? Imagine that the entire, and I don't, I don't want to even be in the Illinois River. I won't swim in it. I won't get my toes in it. I don't want to be, it just looks nasty to me. As soon as the lily pads come back where we get clean water, then I'll go swimming. <laughs> but otherwise, forget it, okay? But imagine you've got the entire, something that's, the size, that's actually bigger than the Illinois, that all of the fish all at once die. Can you imagine vile stench of that? To say nothing of all the blood. Been around a butcher shop. Butcher shops are clean by comparison. And the whole thing is blood. Dead fish. I can't imagine the stench that must be. And it smells like death. And God says, you relied on this thing and you think that through worshiping this, the the, the you know, the anthropomorphic manifestations of this thing that I made, that in that you have life. I want to show you that in worshiping that thing, you have death. And it will lead to your destruction. And so he strikes the Nile. And something else interesting happens. You, you may not see this in your text, but I want to show it to you. Um, verse 19 ESV reads uh, there will be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. NIV, if you have that, says in the wooden buckets and stone jars. I want to tell you that both of those things are interpretive. Okay? It says, literally in Hebrew, in or on the wood things and the stone things. So you have to guess. Well, what are the wood things and the stone things? Uh, I talked to my Hebrew professor from seminary about this, and what he says is, 
he goes, think about the, the fact that the Bible does not like to name or talk about pagan gods. Very rarely are pagan gods ever mentioned by name, just like Pharaoh is not mentioned by name. In the whole story of Exodus, he's just called Pharaoh. And so you have to dig around from history to find out which one we're talking about. Pharaoh is never mentioned by name. Why? Because he is regarded as a god in Egypt, and we're not going to give power to that by using his name. In the same way, we never mention any of the gods of Egypt that were attacking through the plague because you're the name of the God was believed to have power, which is why God so emphasizes, this is my name, right? And so you will know that I am the Lord, as he says again here in the text. I am Yahweh, and this is my name. The name of these things is never given. And so my Hebrew professor thinks, and this is actually not just him, this is not just his idiosyncratic interpretation, but this is all actually something you should see in commentators uh, as, it co as it crops up, that what's being referenced here is wooden and stone idols. And that, what and that what happens in the plague of blood is that these limestone idols, limestone holds a lot of water, and wood holds water, that as the plague falls, that these idols begin to bleed the water in them begins to leak out. And God is showing that these things these things and following them only leads to death. And you cannot continue to pursue this idol. And so there's blood and rotting dead fish everywhere. And the only way you can get water to drink is to dig a new well and get groundwater. And you would think that this kind of miracle, undeniable manifestation of the power of God as billions of gallons of water turn to blood instantaneously at the command of God. That that kind of miracle would turn Pharaoh's heart, except it doesn't. He brings in his magicians, and once again, through whatever secret arts they possess, they're able to reproduce the miracle. Not to the same extent as Moses, because their power, as you'll see, begins to decline. One of the later plagues, they try to do what God has done, and they're like, can't do it. We'll see that. But Pharaoh, nevertheless, believes that he is not dealing with a God who is so powerful that he must be obeyed. And so he continues to harden his own heart, though clear signs are given, though every opportunity is given to repent and obey God's command. He hardens his heart, goes back in his house, and he does not let Israel go. And in all of this, what we are definitely supposed to see is that God reigns over both creation and the so-called gods of Egypt. That though there are Egyptian magicians with abilities to conjure things, their powers never equal 
the living God who made all things. Amen? And in contrast to the living God, all other claimants to the title are pretenders and posers. And God is able to do with his creation whatever he wants. The God who spoke and said, let there be and there was, is able to do anything that he wants to cause people to forsake their idols and worship. And that's part of the point that we're supposed to get out of this text. That you know, the, the, the Israelites are not yet convinced completely that God is really powerful and really able to deliver. The Egyptians are not yet convinced that they have any reason to, to obey the commands of the God of the slaves. And yet, God is going to continue to show that he is to be obeyed, followed, worshipped. Uh, we began today by comparing Pharaoh to a two-year-old, insisting that Egypt and especially Israel within it are mine. God the Father is bringing a giant dose of correction to that concept, to that false idea, and all of its outworkings. In fact, as the, the great Dutch theologian and prime minister of, uh, of, of Holland, Abraham Kuyper, said, this is his line, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign above all, does not cry, Mine. God is sovereign, and He reigns over all things, and He will always work out His plan, even in the midst of bringing judgment. He will always work out His plan to bring good to His people and glory to Himself. And so as we wrap up our study today, I want to draw our attention to three great truths in this passage. Three things that I think God makes clear for us, that, and that because we love him, he expects us to heed and obey and apply. So number one, Satan often offers a deceptive counterfeit, and we must not fall for it. Satan often offers a deceptive counterfeit, and we must not fall for it. How do you think the Israelites reacted when the magicians of Egypt are able to reproduce two of the signs that Moses did in front of them? Remember, when Moses went to the people of Israel, he did, he did three signs, and they, and they all bowed down, and they worshiped God, and they thought, God is really with us. But then the Egyptian magicians are able to do two of the, two of the same signs. What do you think they thought? I'll tell you what I bet they thought. I bet they thought, well, it must not be that big of a deal because the Egyptians can do it too, Moses. And a lot of people were probably deceived and discouraged. And in the same way, Satan and the demonic realm are still alive today. They are still putting out their deceptive counterfeits in everything from various forms of pseudo-Christianity to good-sounding poison. If you watch religious TV, which is something I don't recommend, um, you see a guy like Joel Osteen, who seems like a living, breathing, plastic person, and he's offering a taxidermy version of Christianity. Christianity. 
that looks good on the outside, but is dead on the inside. Satan continues to offer counterfeits that deceive people and discourage the people of God. And you need to not fall for it. You need to be discerning enough. You need to understand enough of who God is because you know enough of His Word to not fall victim to that sin. You know, the ingredients in rat poison, only 10% of them are harmful. True story. But that 10% is deadly. And it will take your life. And taxidermy your faith right along with his. Number two, God reigns over all competing gods. I think it was Martin Luther who said that our hearts are idle, I-D-O-L, factories. That they spit out counterfeit gods a mile a minute. And they do. Whatever we are relying on, other than God himself, to bring us life is an idol. It's an idol. It's a counterfeit God. And because God loves us, he will do whatever he must in our life to squash its power and reveal it to be the false, deceptive idol that it is. Maybe your idol is not some weird-looking blue man. Or a dude with a crocodile for a head. Maybe it's power. Feeling important. Having control. Maybe it's your bank account. Your title. Your social status. Your connections. Your sex life. Maybe something good sounding like your own righteousness which has filled you with pride. And you've said to yourself, self, I have this whole thing wired because all the things that give me life are going my way. God will reign over all these things. And if you are a child of God, then God will bring whatever correction he must into your life you turn loose of these things. And if you are not a child of God, then that which is bringing, you think is bringing you life is in fact bringing you bringing you death. Because sinful things always have as their wages. That's what the scriptures say. Last thing. Do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Some of us right now sitting here in this room looking very polished, very clean, got our makeup on, our nice clothes. We're, uh, you know, we're able to play poker pretty well even if we've never got the cards. Uh, we just, you know, we look good on the outside. And we come to church and when people ask, how are you doing? Oh, fine, fine. I'm very blessed, brother. How are you? Okay. And, and we, we learn to kind of talk the Christian lingo, play the Christian game. But in reality, what's going on is, is that we are deeply, in our heart of hearts, enmeshed and caught up and ensnared by sin. And it's got hold of us. 
And maybe we're think, we think that we're justified in doing it because of reasons X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, my parents or my wife or my kids or you just don't understand and this is all the reasons why I'm this way or why I'm doing what I'm doing or thinking what I'm thinking or saying what I'm saying. And maybe you think even this. Well, I need to do this now, and so I'm going to do this now, and then I'll repent later. After all, God is going to forgive me, because isn't that his job? If that is what you are doing, and that is what you are thinking, let me tell you, you are well advanced down the road, hardening your heart. Because when you sin, what it does two things. It, first of all, separates you from God and also builds calluses on your soul to where you grow deaf to hearing the word of God and hardened to the poking of the Holy Spirit to lead you back toward repentance and to obedience. And if you are sitting here this morning and that describes you, that you are starting to become hardened, Hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. God is speaking to you, and what he's saying is very simple. Psalm 95, verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in rebellion. If you don't know the Lord, and Pharaoh didn't, if you don't know the Lord, do not harden your heart. Instead, bring all of your mess and say to God, here I am with my junk. And I have been told that you are a God who loves and forgives people in worse mess than me. That's true, and it is, by the way. God, I ask you to forgive me and to cleanse me and make me yours. And by the way, do you know that the same privilege extends to us who are already members of the family? That we can haul all of our junk, all of the garbage we've gotten ensnared by and covered up in, and we can go right before the throne of grace. In fact, Hebrews says, let us come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And some of us are needy right now. And we can say, God, I screwed up. And let me tell you all the ways. From A to Z, here they are. Father, I need forgiveness. I need cleansing. I need help. I need healing. And you know what I found out? Let you in a little secret. You get not only forgiven, you can get victory. You can get victory over stuff that has you by the throat. And you can get healing, forgiveness, and restoration into the joy of knowing Jesus once more. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God 
who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And if you already know the Lord, repent. Come back to God. Ask for forgiveness and receive cleansing. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your powerful Word. We thank You for Your almighty power by which You created the world, by which You brought us into existence, by Your mighty promises, Your great power, and Your magnificent love You have sent Your Son to die on a cross to be sacrificed for my sin and for the sins of every person in the entire world who would need forgiveness. And Father, You offer forgiveness to us freely if we will but come to You, confess our need, and ask. Father, we pray that today we would not harden our hearts to You, but that we would grow increasingly soft to hearing Your Word and to obeying You because we love You, because You are eminently worthy, supremely worthy of all the love, affection, obedience, and sacrifice we can give. And we pray in Jesus' name.